0: we've made it this is episode 150 of another world audiobooks and it is made possible to you today by our generous patrons who are supporting the podcast thank you so much to aaron marissa john and ediosa thank you so much guys for making this podcast possible we have the only reason we're at 150 episodes is because you guys listen and we have these generous awesome amazing patrons who donate to support the podcast so if you want to support the podcast just go to anchor.fm slash another world audiobooks and click on support this podcast welcome to another episode of another world lot ebooks we are charging forward into the hound of the baskervilles i forgot like how <laughs> just i don't know this is definitely a darker sherlock story it definitely has uh, some more fantastical elements to it and i just love how sherlock plays it off and yeah it's just a really cool story so we're really getting into the mystery of it sorry last episode was a little bit on the short side uh, but yeah it's just been running ragged trying to get these episodes out on time so i hope you guys enjoy this without further ado i give you chapter two of the of the Baskervilles. Chapter Two, The Curse of the Baskervilles.
1: I have in my pocket a
0: manuscript," said Doctor James Mortimer. "I observed it as you entered the room," said Holmes.
1: "It is an old manuscript, early eighteenth century, unless it is a forgery." "How can you say that, sir?" "You have presented
0: an inch or two of it to my examination all the time that you have been talking." It would be a poor expert who could not give the date of a document within a decade or so. You may possibly have read my little monograph upon the subject. I put that at 1730.
1: The exact date is 1742. Dr. Mortimer drew it from his breast pocket. This family paper was committed to my care by Sir Charles Baskerville, whose sudden and tragic death some three months ago created so much excitement in Devonshire. "'I may say that I was his personal friend as well as his medical attendant. "'He was a strong-minded man, sir, shrewd, practical, and as unimaginative as I am myself, "'yet he took this document very seriously, "'and his mind was prepared for just such an end as did eventually overtake him.' Holmes stretched out his hand for the manuscript and flattened it upon his knee. "'You will observe, Watson, the alternative use of the long S and the short.' It is one of the several indications that enabled me to fix the date. I looked over his shoulder at the yellow paper and the faded script. At the head was written Baskerville Hall, and below in large scrawling figures, 1742. It appears to be a statement of some sort. Yes, it is a statement of a certain legend which runs in the Baskerville family.
0: But I understand that it is something more modern and practical upon which you wish to consult me.
1: Most modern, a most practical pressing matter, which must be decided within twenty-four hours, but the manuscript is short and is innately connected with the affair. With your permission, I will read it to you. Holmes leaned back in his chair, placing his fingertips together and closed his eyes, with an air of resignation. Dr. Mortimer turned the manuscript to the light, and read in a high, cracking voice the following curious old-world narrative. Of the origin of the Hound of the Baskervilles, there have been many statements, yet as I come in a direct line from Hugo Baskerville, and as I had the story from my father, who also had it from his, I have set it down with all belief that it occurred even as it is here set forth. And I would have you believe, my sons, that the same justice which punishes sin may also most graciously forgive it, and that no ban is so heavy that by prayer and repentance it may be removed.' Learn then from this story not to fear the fruits of the past, but rather to be circumspect in the future, that those foul passions whereby our family has suffered so grievously may not again be loose to our undoing. Know then that in the time of the great rebellion, the history of which by the learned Lord Clarendon I most earnestly commend to your attention, this manor of Baskerville was held by Hugo of that name, nor can it be gainsaid that he was a most wild, profane, and godless man. This, in truth, his neighbours might have pardoned, seeing that saints have never flourished in those parts. But there was in him a certain wanton and cruel humour which made his name a byword through the West, It chanced that this Hugo came to love, if indeed so dark a passion may be known under so bright a name, the daughter of a yeoman who held land near the Baskerville estate. But the young maiden, being discreet and of good repute, would ever avoid him, for she feared his evil name— So it came to pass that one Michaelmas, this Hugo, with five or six of his idle and wicked companions, stole down upon the farm, and carried off the maiden, her father and brothers being from home, as he well knew. When they had brought her to the hall, the maiden was placed in an upper chamber, while Hugo and his friends sat down to a long carouse, as was their nightly custom. Now the poor lass upstairs was like to have her wits turned at the singing and shouting and terrible oaths which came up to her from below— for they say that the words used by Hugo Baskerville, when he was in wine, were such as might blast the man who sent them. At last, in the stress of her fear, she did that which might have daunted the bravest and most active man. For by the aid of the growth of ivy which covered, and still covers, the south wall, she came down from under the eaves, and so homeward across the moor, there being three leagues betwixt the hall and her father's farm." It chanced that, some little time later, Hugo left his guests to carry food and drink, with other worse things perchance, to his captive, and so found the cage empty and the bird escaped. Then, as it would seem, he became as one that hath a demon, for, rushing down the stairs into the dining-hall, he sprang upon the great table, flagons and trenchers flying before him, and he cried aloud before all the company, that he would, that very night, render his body and soul to the powers of evil, if he might but overtake the wench." And while the revellers stood aghast at the fury of the man, one more wicked, or, it may be, more drunken than the rest, cried out that they should put the hounds upon her, whereat Hugo ran from the house, crying to his grooms that they should saddle his mare and unkennel the pack, and giving the hounds a kerchief of the maids, he swung them to the line, and so off full crying the moonlight over the moor. Now for some space the revellers stood agape, unable to understand all that had been done in such haste, but anon their bemused wits awoke to the nature of the deed which was like to be done upon the moorlands. Everything was, now, in an uproar, some calling for their pistols, some for their horses, and some for another flask of wine. But at length some sense came back to their crazed minds, and the whole of them, thirteen in number, took horse and started in pursuit. The moon shone clear above them, and they rode swiftly abreast, taking that course which the maid must needs have taken if she were to reach her own home." They had gone a mile or two when they passed one of the night shepherds upon the moorlands, and they cried to him to know if he had seen the hunt, and the man, as the story goes, was so crazed with fear that he could scarce speak. But at last he said that he had indeed seen the unhappy maiden with the hounds upon her track. "'But I have seen more than that,' said he, "'for Hugo Baskerville passed me upon his black mare, and there ran mute behind him such a hound of hell as, God forbid, should ever be at my heels.' so the drunken squires cursed the shepherd, and rode onward, but soon their skins turned cold, for there came a galloping across the moor, and the black mare dabbled with white froth, when passed with trailing bridle and empty saddle. Then the revellers rode close together, for a great fear was on them, but they still followed over the moor, though each, had he been alone, would have been right glad to have turned his horse's head. Riding slowly in this fashion, they came at last upon the hounds, These, though known for their valour and their breed, were whimpering in a cluster at the head of a deep dip, or goyle, as we call it, upon the moor, some slinking away, and some with starting hackles and staring eyes, gazing down the narrow valley before them. The company had come to a halt, more sober men, as you may guess, than when they started. The most of them would by no means advance, but three of them, the boldest, or it may be the most drunken, rode forward down the goyle, now it opened into a broad space in which stood two of those great stones, still to be seen there, which were sent by a certain forgotten people in the days of old. The moon was shining bright upon the clearing, and there, in the centre, lay the unhappy maid where she had fallen, dead of fear and fatigue. But it was not the sight of her body, nor yet was it that of the body of Hugo Baskerville lying near her, which raised the hair upon the heads of these three daredevil roysters, But it was that. Standing over Hugo, and plucking at his throat, there stood a foul hound, yet larger than any hound that ever mortal eyes has rested upon. And even as they looked, the thing tore the throat out of Hugo Baskerville, on which, as it turned its blazing eyes and dripping jaws upon them, the three shrieked with fear, and rode for dear life, still screaming across the moor. One, it said, died that very night of what he had seen, and the other twain were but broken men for the rest of their days." "'Such is the tale, my sons, of the coming of the hound, which is said to have plagued the family so sorely ever since. "'If I have set it down, it is because that which is clearly known hath less terror than that which is but hinted at and guessed. "'Nor can it be denied that many of the family have been unhappy in their deaths, which have been sudden, bloody, and mysterious.' Yet may we shelter ourselves in the infinite goodness of providence, which would not for ever punish the innocent beyond that third or fourth generation which is threatened in holy writ. To that providence, my sons, I hereby commend you, and I counsel you, by way of caution, to forbear from crossing the moor in those dark hours when the powers of evil are exalted. This from Hugo Baskerville to his sons, Roger and John, with instructions that they say nothing thereof to their sister, Elizabeth."
0: When Dr. Mortimer had finished
1: reading this singular narrative, he pushed his spectacles up on his forehead and stared across at Mr. Sherlock Holmes. The latter yawned and tossed the end of his cigarette into the fire.
0: "'Well?' said he.
1: "'Do you not find it interesting?' "'To a collector of fairy tales.' Dr. Mortimer drew a folded newspaper out of his pocket. "'Now, Mr. Holmes, we will give you something a little more recent.' This is the Devon County Chronicle of May 14th of this year. It is a short account of the facts elicited at the death of Sir Charles Baskerville, which occurred a few days before that date. My friend leaned a little forward, and his expression became intent. Our visitor readjusted his glasses and began. The recent sudden death of Sir Charles Baskerville, whose name has been mentioned as the probable Liberal candidate for mid-Devon at the next election, has cast a gloom over the county— Though Sir Charles had resided at Baskerville Hall for a comparatively short period, his amiability of character and extreme generosity had won the affection and respect of all who had been brought into contact with him. In these days of noir riches, it is refreshing to find a case where the scion of an old county family, which has fallen on evil days, is able to make his own fortune, and to bring it back with him to restore the fallen grandeur of his line.' "'Sir Charles, as is well known, made large sums of money in South African speculation. More wise than those who go on until the wheel turns against them, he realised his gains and returned to England with them. It is only two years since he took up his residence at Baskerville Hall, and it is common talk how large were those schemes of reconstruction and improvement which had been interrupted by his death.' "'Being himself childless, it was his openly expressed desire that the whole countryside "'should, within his own lifetime, profit by his good fortune, and many will have personal "'reasons for bewailing his untimely death. His generous donations to local and county "'charities have been frequently chronicled in these columns. The circumstances connected "'with the death of Sir Charles cannot be said to have been entirely cleared up by the inquest, "'but at least enough has been done to dispose of those rumours to which local superstition "'has given rise.' there is no reason whatever to suspect foul play, or to imagine that death could be from any but natural causes. Sir Charles was a widower, and a man who may be said to have been in some ways of an eccentric habit of mind. In spite of his considerable wealth, he was simple in his personal tastes, and his indoor servants at Baskerville Hall consisted of a married couple named Barrymore, the husband acting as butler, and the wife as housekeeper." "'Their evidence, corroborated by that of several friends, tends to show that Sir Charles's health has for some time been impaired, and points especially to some affection of the heart, manifesting itself in changes of colour, breathlessness, and acute attacks of nervous depression. Mr. James Mortimer, the friend and medical attendant of the deceased, has given evidence to the same effect.' "'The facts of the case are simple. "'Sir Charles Baskerville was in the habit every night "'before going to bed "'of walking down the famous Yew Alley of Baskerville Hall. "'The evidence of the Barrymores "'shows that this has been his custom. "'On the 4th of May, "'Sir Charles had declared his intention "'of starting next day for London, "'and had ordered Barrymore to prepare his luggage. "'That night he went out as usual for his nocturnal walk, "'in the course of which he was in the habit "'of smoking a cigar. "'He never returned. "'At twelve o'clock, Barrymore finding the hall-door still open, became alarmed, and lighting a lantern, went in search of his master. The day had been wet, and Sir Charles's footmarks were easily traced down the alley. Halfway down this walk, there is a gate which leads out on to the moor. There were indications that Sir Charles had stood for some little time here. He then proceeded down the alley, and it was at the far end of it that his body was discovered one fact which has not been explained is the statement of Barrymore that his master's footprints altered their character from that time that he passed the moor gate, and that he appeared from thence onward to have been walking upon his toes. One Murphy, a gypsy horse dealer, was on the moor at no great distance at the time, but he appears, by his own confession, to have been the worse for drink. He declares that he heard cries, but is unable to state from what direction they came no signs of violence were to be discovered upon sir charles's person and though the doctor's evidence pointed to an almost incredible facial distortion so great that dr mortimer refused at first to believe that it was indeed his friend and patient who lay before him it was explained that that is a symptom which is not unusual in cases of dyspnea and death from cardiac exhaustion this explanation was borne out by the post-mortem examination which showed long-standing organic disease and the coroner's jury returned a verdict in accordance with the medical evidence it is well that this is so for it is obviously of the utmost importance that sir charles's heir should settle at the hall and continue the good work which has been so sadly interrupted had the prosaic finding of the coroner not finally put an end to the romantic stories which had been whispered in connection with the affair, it might have been difficult to find a tenant for Baskerville Hall. It is understood that the next of kin is Mr. Henry Baskerville, if he be still alive, the son of Sir Charles Baskerville's younger brother. The young man, when last heard of, was in America, and inquiries have been instituted with a view to informing him of his good fortune." Dr. Mortimer refilled his paper and replaced it in his pocket. "'Those are the public facts, Mr. Holmes, in connection with the death of Sir Charles Baskerville.'
0: "'I must thank you,' said Sherlock Holmes, "'for calling my attention to a case which certainly presents
1: some features of interest. I had observed some newspaper comment at the time, but I was exceedingly preoccupied with that little affair of the Vatican cameos.' "'and in my
0: anxiety to oblige the Pope, "'I lost touch with several interesting English cases. "'This article, you say, contains all the public facts?' "'It does.' "'Then let me have the private ones.' "'He
1: leaned back, put his fingertips together, "'and assumed his most impassive and judicial expression. "'In doing so,' said Dr. Mortimer, "'who had begun to show signs of some strong emotion.' "'I am telling that which I have not confided to anyone. My motive for withholding it from the coroner's inquiry is that a man of science shrinks from placing himself in the public position of seeming to endorse popular superstition. I had the further motive that Baskerville Hall, as the paper says, would certainly remain untenanted if anything were done to increase its already rather grim reputation.' "'For both these reasons I thought that I was justified in telling rather less than I knew, "'since no practical good could result from it. "'But with you there is no reason why I should not be perfectly frank. "'The Moor is very sparsely inhabited, "'and those who live near each other are thrown very much together. "'For this reason I saw a good deal of Sir Charles Baskerville. "'With the exception of Mr. Franklin of Laughterhall, and Mr. Stapleton the Naturalist, "'there are no other men of education within many miles.' Sir Charles was a retiring man, but the chance of his illness brought us together, and a community of interest in science kept us so. He had brought back much scientific information from South Africa, and many a charming evening we have spent together, discussing the comparative anatomy of Bushmen and the hottentots Within the last few months it became increasingly plain to me that Sir Charles's nervous system was strained to the breaking point. He had taken this legend which I have read you exceedingly to heart— "'so much so that, although he would walk in his own grounds, "'nothing would induce him to go out upon the moor at night. "'Incredible as it may appear to you, Mr. Holmes, "'he was honestly convinced that a dreadful fate overhung his family, "'and certainly the records which he was able to give of his ancestors "'were not encouraging. "'The idea of some ghastly presence constantly haunted him, "'and on more than one occasion he has asked me "'whether I had on my medical journeys at night "'ever seen any strange creature.' or heard the baying of a hound. The latter question he put to me several times, and always with a voice which vibrated with excitement. I can well remember, driving up to his house in the evening some three weeks before the fatal event, he chanced to be at his hall door. I descended from my gig, and was standing in front of him, when I saw his eyes fix themselves over my shoulder, and stare past me with an expression of the most dreadful horror— I whisked round and had just time to catch a glimpse of something which I took to be a large black calf passing at the head of the drive. So excited and alarmed was he that I was compelled to go down to the spot where the animal had been and look around for it. It was gone, however, and the incident appeared to make the worst impression upon his mind. I stayed with him all the evening, and it was on that occasion to explain the emotion which he had shown that he confided to my keeping that narrative which I read to you when first I came— "'I mention this small episode because it assumes some importance in view of the tragedy which followed, but I was convinced at the time that the matter was entirely trivial, and that his excitement had no justification. It was at my advice that Sir Charles was about to go to London. His heart was, I knew, affected, and the constant anxiety in which he lived, however chimerical the cause of it might be, was evidently having a serious effect upon his health.' I thought that a few months among the distractions of town would send him back a new man. Mr. Stapleton, a mutual friend who was much concerned at his state of health, was of the same opinion. At the last instant came this terrible catastrophe. On the night of Sir Charles's death, Berrymore, the butler who made the discovery, sent Perkins the groom on horseback to me, and as I was sitting up late I was able to reach Baskerville Hall within an hour of the event. I checked and corroborated all the facts which were mentioned at the inquest— "'I followed the footsteps down the U alley. "'I saw the spot at the moor gate "'where he seemed to have waited. "'I remarked the change in the shape of the prince "'after that point. "'I noted that there were no other footsteps "'save those of Berrymore on the soft gravel, "'and finally I carefully examined the body, "'which had not been touched until my arrival. "'Sir Charles lay on his face, his arms out, "'his fingers dug into the ground, "'and his features convulsed with some strong emotion "'to such an extent that I could hardly have sworn to his identity.' There was certainly no physical injury of any kind. But one false statement was made by Barrymore at the inquest. He said that there were no traces upon the ground round the body. He did not observe any, but I did. Some little distance off, but fresh and clear. Footprints? Footprints?
0: A man's or a woman's? Dr.
1: Mortimer looked strangely at us for an instant, and his voice sank almost to a whisper as he answered, Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound.
0: Alright, thank you guys so much for listening today, and remember to spread the podcast. The more people that listen, uh, just it, it just helps the podcast grow, and allows me to be able to bring you more episodes and more awesome stuff. 150 episodes in, I want to do all the way to 300 and beyond. So, uh, yeah, keep listening, keep sharing the podcast, and hope you are enjoying this new Sherlock adventure. And remember, this isn't just the Sherlock podcast. If you're just tuning in for the first time and haven't caught those 150 other episodes that we've done, inside those 150 other episodes, there are all kinds of awesome books uh, Treasure Island Pride and Prejudice Frankenstein um, yeah just go check it out Tarzan we've got all kinds so go ahead and check out the backlist there and make sure to uh, yeah, let me know what you think I'd love to hear from you that just literally makes my day anytime I hear from a listener to the show uh, if you want to leave a review that would be awesome I'll give you a giant shout out on the show make sure everybody knows uh, if you want to support the podcast anchor.fm slash another world audiobooks and then click support um, or if you just want to say hi I would love to hear from you thanks guys When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy-to-follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written, and best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to invicta.enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's invicta.enterprises slash free checklist.